Hello and welcome to another episode of Soundstage Access, a podcast that brings you in-depth to discuss many of the complex, beautiful, and creative sides of filmmaking. I'm your host, Brando Benetton, and my guest this week is Dan Lauschten, a Danish cinematographer whose work includes fantastical and action-filled projects such as The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, this year's John Wick Chapter 2, and the highly anticipated The Shape of Water by visionary director Guillermo del Toro. In our conversation, we talk about Dan's early days as a photographer, his dialogue and process working with del Toro, and how his work on Crimson Peak eventually led him to be selected as a cinematographer on the sequel for John Wick. So without further ado, let's go to our conversation. We always like to begin by asking our guests, uh, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? I'm born and raised in a small city in, out of Copenhagen in Denmark. And my daddy was working in a uh, shipyard ship, factory, you know, as a working guy. And my mom was a school teacher. So I'm coming from a very simple and small family, but you know, I have a really good life. And mom and dad was fantastic. And I have a big sister, she's living in the United States. When did it when did it pop in your head the idea of going to you know the Danish film school? Because I know you started as as a still photographer. Exactly, I'm educated as a still photographer, and I started when I was fifteen, I think. A buddy and me in the schoolers, you know, starting to take pictures, and you know, we was working on the there's both between Sweden and Denmark, but we was dishwashing guys in the summer times, you know, and you're staying down with the motors, you know. So we did that for the whole summer, like for two months to earn some money for this our first still camera, so we did that and we started to take pictures and we have a really place that was fantastic and and then I'm starting my education as a fashion commercial photographer, you know, it takes four years, three years, you're going to the school, you're working in the studio, you go to the school again and that's, you're meeting a lot of young students there of course. So I was getting very much into documentary photographers and I wanted to be a National Geographic photographer, but you know, it was, of course, impossible. Right, and you decided to eventually start switching uh, from still photography. No, what's happening then, there was educators as a fashion photographer, and I was so fed up. I didn't like that world. I was like, I want to go to another place, and there was National Geographic was coming in there, and that was not a possibility. So my sister saw uh, advertising in the Danish newspapers for the Danish film school. They were looking for students for the cinematographer line. And she said, what about going into the film schools? And I said, you must be kidding. I'm not into film at all. You know, I want to take pictures. I don't care about film. I've never been interested in making films at all. I, you know, went to the cinema Christmas to see a movie. And that was it with mom and dad. Uh, and she said, you know, it's my sister. She's like, of course, big sister is always painting somewhere. And she said, don't be like that. Just give it a try. And I said, I don't know anything about movie making. How should I do that? She said, don't be like that. So I was applied for the film school, you know, you have to write the stuff and you have to take some pictures. I was 22 and everybody else was 20, 32. So I was, I was young, 10 years younger than everybody else in the cinematographer line. So I was sure I was not coming into the film school and I didn't care because, you know, it was just a wild shot. And the months later, I got a letter and coming into the film school. And at that point, you were like, I gotta go. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. because the school was so cool, you know, a lot of young guys, you know, a lot of, all the directors was much younger, you know, my age and stuff like that. You just have to believe in yourself and don't 
you know, what do you like and what don't, don't doesn't like and what is the director want you to do and, you know, this re relationship with the director, I think that's very, very important and you get that as a very strong feeling when you're going on a school. Yeah. Because everybody's forcing to work together. You cannot just sit in a corner and be like, I don't want to do that. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to 2003 with a movie that um, that's called The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen that I personally remember because I saw it in theaters my dad brought me. You have a large cast and I was wondering um, if you could talk about that process and how that production fell to you looking back so many years ago. It's a couple of years ago, of course. I don't remember clearly, but you know, it was... It was a fantastic movie to Stephen Norrington was the director. I met him in London. He asked me about some stuff and, you know, like we are sitting here in the couch and 10 minutes later I got the job. So it was very relaxed and, you know, so we were starting prep this big, big movie in Europe, you know, and that was in Prague. We shot most of the stuff in Prague and the built Venice in Prague and, and Kara Spear was a production designer. She did a fantastic job and uh, Sean Connery was the leading act. Um, and of course, he was a gentleman or, or a gentleman because, you know, it's Mr. Sean Connery. So that was that was pretty cool. But the process, you know, we unfortunately, that was that year where there was so much flood in Europe. So, you know, we have a big flood. Everybody, the crew members lost their houses when we were shooting. It was, it was awful. And we have a couple of floods. We lost our sets and stuff like that. But the process, because Stephen Norrington was a, is a very smart director and a clever guy. So his whole concept about making that book into a movie was fantastic. Uh, and working together with Sean Connery, of course, you know, was a blessed because, you know, his last movie, we didn't know that those days, but it was just fun. It was really big. Those days it was a really huge movie. Uh, and we shot, I think it was in Prague for nine months. Wow. Uh, and as I said, it was one of those years where it was raining all the time. It was like uh, raining every day, more or less. It was really tough. But the process was pretty straightforward, you know, we shot this Stevens' great ideas about how the set everything should have to be wide and, you know, he was just going the opposite way those days instead of making it dark, dark, dark. He wants to, the submarine was wide, everything has to be bright and so that was interesting. The production is designed especially in terms of vehicles, uh, costumes is what I remember most. I remember it having a lot of CGI and did that, the visual effects part of uh, League require a lot of imagination in terms of framing or or did you... Yeah, for sure. But those days, you know, we did a lot of storyboards because it was a pretty early CGI movie and, you know, set extensions and stuff like that. So, you know, we have to be very prepared for that. So we did a lot of storyboards and a lot of, you know, there was a lot of, lot of green screens everywhere. Uh, so it's a mix between, you know, we shot a lot of stuff. Most of the stuff we shot in Prague and then we shot the whole submarine thing. We shot that in Malta on the tower of, of the submarine, all that. We did that physical because we didn't want to do the green screen. So we went down to Malta to shoot that for two or three weeks, two weeks maybe. Um, I wanted to take some time especially to talk about your latest films because uh, they're especially the ones that people might remember more vividly. And the first question I was going to ask you about uh, obviously Crimson Peak, that we were hearing you speak a few days ago uh, about that being your first collaboration with Guillermo since Mimic. That's correct. In 1997, Crimson Peak is 2015, almost 10, uh, 20 years. And I was wondering if Guillermo ever discussed with you uh, what made Crimson Peak be the film 
for you guys to go back, return and collaborate on after so many other films you had made? No, we never talked about that, you know, we did Mimic in, no, what did you say, 96? 97. 97, some years ago. Uh, and that was a fantastic movie, you know, we, it was his first American movie, the one, and that was my second American movie, so you know. And that was a very dark movie, so we were sure we were watching fight every day because it was a really dark movie, and, you know, we shot on film, and it was, it was fantastic. And we have, it was a hard time to shoot it, but it was a really fun time, a long, tough shoot in Toronto with a bunch of really nice guys. But then we took a break and I don't know exactly why we did, you know, it didn't, he asked me a couple of times to do some movies, but you never think, you know, I couldn't do it or whatever, any reasons. And then he called me in 2000 and what it was? What? 2015 was 15, when it came yeah. out. So maybe so. he called me 2014 and asked me to come to Toronto for a scout. So I did that and actually we walked into the door and it was like we had been together for two days ago. It was fantastic. So we was clicking right away. It was just those twenty years just gone. Went by. Uh, went by, yeah. And um, so that was, of course, Crimson Peak was a fantastic movie to do. Uh, but we didn't. It was like we haven't been. We have been together the whole time. It was really weird. I was lucky enough to see the film first in IMAX when I was in London, and then the second time. I told you this when uh, last year at LACMA there was a great exhibition about Guillermo going on. Uh, there was going to be uh, a Q&A. Oh, yeah. They were going to screen the film in 35mm again, and, and, and he came and talked about it. I took so many notes and so many stuck with me. Uh, and I remember him talking about hoping the film would feel like a living painting. Uh, so you've probably been asked about what films you watch as reference, but what about, what about art? What kind of art inspires you, and did you watch it, any paintings to grab inspiration for the film? Not for Crimson Peak, because, you know, Guillermo is a very precise director, you know, he's making a lot of concept drawings and of course, you know, we like the same way of shooting, you know, we not we like single light sources, you know, deep shadows, you know, we're not afraid of the darkness and we like to move the camera a lot. Uh, and actually the only, t the, when we should shoot Crimson Peak, he showed me a movie from Europe, from Europe in black and white. I was like, you know, this is, a, she looks like this one, but that was black and white, and we shot it very colorful. And I said, okay. But it was a very moody movie, you know, very deep shadows and uh, a lot of camera movement. And we were trying to do, we were dreaming about making these old-fashioned, you know, Orson Welles kind of movies, but it doesn't work so well in color, I think, you know, so you cannot do these long shadows and stuff like that. So, But he's a very specific director, you know, you know he's doing these moonboards, and he knows exactly which way he wants to go. And, and that's fantastic. You talked about color, and one of the quotes that stuck with me, and once I heard him talk about that night, it was like, color is language. Red is the most voracious color. It eats everything. It goes from the clay in Crimson Peak uh, to Hellboy's texture, obviously. And he said that in Crimson Peak, it represents the past. And I was wondering if you could talk about the conversations you had, because it looked like it was so much fun color-wise to design, uh, not just the meaning of colors, but how did you guys choose to spread them out throughout the film? You know, again, it's more Guillermo's concept, but, you know, we're coming into a set and we talk about together with the production designer uh, and, you know, how should this set look, you know, is that green the right green or should that be a little bit more darker green? We're spending a lot of time to choosing the colors density on the walls because it's so important for the actors' faces, you know, so the actors are pumping out. So, the color palette is more or less set, but we are working very close to, you know, the costume designs, you know, the 
production designs, the density of the colors. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons Crimson Peak works so fantastic and Shape of Water as well, because it's so close relationships between the art departments and myself and the water and Guillermo, of course, to figure out which, what is the volume on the colors and the walls and the costumes and the cars and all this kind of stuff. So it's going to be the palette is going to match what he thinks it should be. But yeah. the palette for the movie, he's, he's doing that pretty early in his brain. So that's set more or less when you're coming in. Of course, you know, we're working a lot around it. But the color palette is Guillermo's. Crimson Peak and both Shape of Water are two films that I was noticing yesterday. They're, we could call them American films in the sense that they're uh, produced and distributed by American studios. Um, and I was wondering, we just spoke about sensibility a moment ago. Both you being from Denmark and Guillermo being from Mexico, what do you think your foreign aspect brings to the films? I don't think it, I don't think it, it doesn't matter where you're born, if you ask me. You know, you can come from all, all over the world. You know, it's just, I think it's more important the film language you're talking, I'm telling. I think that's the most important, you know, and maybe when you're coming from Europe, we are a little bit less afraid of the darkness because we are not like, you know, some American movies like, oh, you cannot make a female actor, you know, back in the, in the shadow side and stuff like that because everything has to be a little, a little bit more glamour. And we don't like that. I don't like that on Guillermo's movie because, of course, you can do that on another movie, but I think the contrast in the faces and the lighting and the color is giving much more powerful images. And maybe you don't have this... If you're raised in the Hollywood system, maybe you could be a little bit more afraid of that. Depends on who you are, of course, of the cinematographers. But, and that's, of course, when you're coming from Mexico and from Denmark, you're raised with a little bit more freedom there. You don't have a studio to tell you what to do and not to do. But on the other hand, you know, sometimes it's nice to have a conversation about stuff. But I think the reason we are working so well together is like we're coming, we have the same taste. It's easier to be more artistic. Um, speaking of Shape of Water, I remember specifically when, when he came in and well, Guillermo felt so excited because he was telling the audience that he had wrapped um, Shape of Water just six days before. Okay. Uh, so this was about the mid-November of last year. After a full year, how does your appreciation for a film like this or, or an understanding change? It's obviously still pretty fresh than it will be in 20 years, yeah. but how does it change when you look at it? When we should start to do the DI, Guillermo called me and said, I'm not, a, I'm not going to be there and I don't think we should make a DI because it looks so fantastic, the dailies. All that we have done in that move, all the colors, everything is from the negative, from the camera. We haven't changed any colors in the DI. Not a single one. You know, we did a little bit, or I did because Guillermo was not there so much. Uh, we did some power windows, you know, if people know what power windows, you know, you make it a corner of the wall a little bit darker, a window a little bit darker or brighter. But we ne we didn't change any colors at all. Not a single color. All the colors is in Crimson Peak is coming from the day we shot it. That's incredible. And that's that's because we, we're so keen about colors should be correct and you know we want to and the you know the density and the atmosphere in the scenes is exactly the same. Uh, the only thing we changed was power windows because you know sometimes it's easier to make a power window comparing to put a flag up. Because you, everybody has to remember or understand, Shape of Water is a small movie. It's not a low budget movie, but it's a $20 million movie. It's not like $150 million. 
and it's 60 days of shoot, you know, so we have to go pretty fast forward. Uh, and I think that's very important as a cinematographer, you have to have your ideas about how it should be done and then go for that and don't... I think the more you do in the camera, like in the old days, it's much, much better because when you're coming into the DI, you can change everything if you want. You can. There's a million tools there and you can get lost in that translation. And I think it's much, much better for you and for the movie if you just stick with your guts and, you know, this is the look we are going for. And just think about what you're doing when you're standing there and, on the day. Yeah, people can tweak so much that they start rather than elevating. I'm sure that you can start damaging what's already there. Yeah, for sure. Um, we got, we were lucky enough to see a couple clips um, a few days ago, and I was wondering if you could re-elaborate. People seem to be very impressed by the idea of creating movement through the texture, even if it's a background. It could be the steam, but you told a very interesting fact about using a film projector, uh, perhaps sometimes shining it into the water or wall in the background and I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that because I think that really struck a chord with a lot of people listening. What we did for example you know the opening sequence where it looks like you know the camera is swimming through the to the hallway and we're coming in she's laying there you know in the, the opening sequence in the trailer. Uh, all that is more or less led with film projectors because you know that movement that movement in the light is made with film projectors. Um, and it's just the shot with tons of smoke, a steady cam shot, and we are coming in there. It feels like she's underwater and she's waking up. So that is shot with film projectors just to get the feeling about the water is moving. So, you know, we did a plate of water, run that into a computer, a normal straight Mac, and feed that into like five or six film projectors. So it looks like, you know, this swim, swimming pool water movement. And we did the same at the lab sequence, you know, at the walls, just to break up the walls a little bit, just to give it a little bit like movement. It's totally unrealistic, but it just feels great. Uh, and I think that's fantastic with Gamble because he's he's not afraid to do stuff like that. He doesn't care about realism. He just wants to have the right feeling and myself as well. And of course, we don't overdo it. It's just a feeling. Some people see it, some people doesn't see it. But I think it's giving the atmosphere to the scene. Yeah, it keeps things moving. Yeah. Uh, my last question to you before I move on to other projects. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about a typical day on set. Uh, you were saying that you and Guillermo like to meet about one hour before the call and talk perhaps through the shots or through the day, depending on the day, obviously the work to do. Um, I was wondering how you keep the rhythm going, not just with him, but with your crew as well in terms of trying to make the day. And if you don't make the day, not freaking out and you know trying to... Uh, keep going. First of all, we try to make our days every day because, you know, as I said, it's not a big movie, you know, so you have you have 60 days and you have to finish what you have to do. And Guillermo is making, he's not making storyboards and he's making his own small kind of storyboards for himself. So we are talking about that briefly, you know, how we're going to do that. Then we just start to shoot and, and he's never, we are never making a master, for example. We are doing everything shot by shot. So it's not like in other movies you're doing a master, then your close-ups, and you're shooting everything all the way through. Most of the times we shoot with one camera, uh, and that's moving all the time. It's a steady cam, or it's a crane, or it's a dolly with a T-bar on, and a hot head. So all the movements is set up specific. And that's the reason it feels so, it doesn't feel like, for me, it doesn't feel like it's, it feels more like the camera is floating 
because all the movement is like from one movement to another movement. And all those movements is something Guillermo have planned, you know, before we're meeting. And, you know, of course, he's changing it to the day a little bit, but, you know, he have a very, very precise ideas about how he wants to do it. And then we talk about how to do it. I really, really um, think people were happy and impressed that you followed up. You, of course, then more than one film in 2017 and I was going to ask you later about the idea of being prolific but one of the films people uh, are probably going to remember well is is John Wick 2 um, and just to pick things up uh, this if correct me if I'm mistaken but it's one of the first films you've done where you've picked up I don't like using the word franchise but picked up a property that had been already started um, and there was, I felt that there was a lot just looking at it. John Wick 1 looked fantastic, but so much felt like it was done in the DI later. It was really tweaks. And I know how important it is to you, as you've just talked about, about grabbing color and, um, and shadows and making sure they're as much in camera as possible. Uh, so could you talk about uh, being approached for John Wick 2, uh, which Chad was directing? And uh, how visually he, the both of you felt comfortable just changing things up visually for the second one. Yeah, you know, Chet called me because he has seen uh, Crimson Peak. And he likes, Chet very much like, you know, these colorful images. And, you know, so I flew to New York. We have a meeting and I said, you know, can you stay here? And I said, well, what are you talking about? You have to go back home, you know. So I stayed for two weeks or whatever. And then we start, we made, start to make the movie. And we talk very much about, you know, we want to make it. Because I'm agreed, the first one looks really, really, it's a great movie, it looks fantastic. But we just want to try to do it a little bit more solid. Uh, so we changed a lot of equipment, you know, we changed lenses. Uh, we went from from some old-fashioned lenses to high-quality uh, mass dynamorphic lenses. It's really, really sharp and high-contrasty lenses and quality lenses, you know. You don't get in flare. And we like flare in that we like lens flares and especially in John Wick. So we Airy New York helped us to make a kind of fishing lines inside the camera. We made you know really low practical. Took a small filter frame and just put some fishing lines in there and glued them to that circle ring there and uh, I think it was six or eight eight, eight lines. And when you have them, when you have a highlight, you've got a beautiful flare. But the rest of the image is very crisp. Yeah. It's not soft at all. It's like sharp and very nice. So we did that. It was very important to have these flare looks. And then, of course, we talked a lot about colors. We want to have these like red, greenish, bluish colors, very prestige. Um, and we did most of that in posters in, in, uh, in the camera as well. Because I think it's much better to have that feeling when you're shooting this is the way it wants to go instead of talking about, no, we're going to fix that later on, or we're going to add some blue or whatever. So color-wise, John Wick was the same. We did everything in camera. We didn't change too much in the DI. We changed the power windows and stuff like that, but we didn't change the look of the movie. What might have been new to you, which I think is the most interesting aspect I wanted to ask you about, is being able to shooting stunts. Now, obviously, people might know that here and there, even Keanu has a stunt double for the most dangerous things. What I think that allows cinematographers to do, which is not 
something you should give for granted is being able to rather than cutting to a wide when a stunt double jumps in, you can bring, when it's Keanu doing the stunts, you can bring the camera right up in there. Of course, he's a fantastic actor. He's a good to make his own stunts. And Chad was very keen to, because you know that Chad knows exactly what he wants to do with stunts. You know, he's coming from the stunt background. He's very, very precise. And he wants to play it. And we talked about that when we were talking about the move in the beginning. We wants to go more like Bertolucci. Play it wide, you know, stay out and see what you want to do. And don't make a million cuts like you do in some of the Chinese movies. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. But we didn't want to do that. We want to go as wide as we can, as long time as we can. And then, of course, go in with a camera and see it's Keanu. Yeah. And not make like 15 setups, like so a lot of the shots, you know, most of the stuff is done with himself. How was uh, shooting in Italy? You know I was going to ask that. I was... It was fantastic, of course. New York and Italy, that's the two nicest cities in the world. Or maybe Copenhagen and LA as well. Uh, speaking of locations that are so imp important uh, in John Wick 2, when you go uh, to Rome, how close um, did you get to discussing uh, where to shoot things? Or did you just arrive and, and the locations had been picked out? And no, no, no. We spent a lot of time. We did that. That's the same in all movies, you know, me and the production designer, and the director, and, you know, we're very keen about the locations because if you're going to location, you know, you want to be able to make some good shots there and tell the story, of course. So we spent, on, especially on John Week, we spent a lot of time in New York and a lot of time in Rome to scout, you know, we spent weeks because it was so important, you know, to find the right spots. Um, and of course, when you're coming to Rome, you don't know Rome so well. You get a lot of, you know, what about this one? You know, we're making a briefing. The production designer is making a briefing to the production manager on the occasion scout. And we want to go this way and this way. And then, then we see a million pictures. And then you go out and see that location that looks fantastic on the picture, but when you're standing there, ah, this was not exactly right. Uh, so we're spending a lot of time to choose locations. You know, that staircase where they're falling down in Rome, you know, where they have this awful fight there because it's so painful. Uh, you know, we spend weeks to find that. Yeah. Uh, and basically because when you don't know a city so well, you're afraid of not finding the perfect spot. So you're spending like, we, there must be another staircase. There must be something, you know. And if you're driving everybody nuts, of course, because there's nothing. And we said, you know, there must be another staircase. So we are running around and watching around in and the night time to find one. Yeah. Um, and of course, we don't want... The problem is sometimes when you're location scouting, you can find falling in love with the location you cannot get. And of course, we don't want to see something we cannot get. So there's always a little bit of a battle, you know. Why can we not shoot there? So it's always... a challenge to find the right spots. We'll be spending a lot of time to do that. Um, John Wick was only one of three films you made in 2017. And even though maybe American audiences uh, know about the larger films, they should also know that you don't shy away from returning to uh, shoot Danish films, a lot of them. So I was going to ask you, while some cinematographers or, you know, any creative individuals on their own might like to do one movie a year and then take you know, take a, a break. How important is it for you to be prolific, to jump from project to project and never get tired? I just like, I love to make movies, you know, I think it's fantastic to be in a movie set and, you know, if you get the right project, you know, it's, uh, why not, you know, I, I think it's great. I love to make movies if you're together with the right people. It's, I think the people, you know, the directors, you know, it's much more important than the 
movies because you have to go the same way. You know, the, the director for me is the most important guy at all. Of course, he wants to do some great projects, but you know, you cannot tell a good story with a director you not have the same opinion about, yeah. about style and everything because it's just getting so difficult. Have, there's one more movie that's coming out um, in January. People might have seen the trailer already, and it's called Proud Mary. Um, you shot it this, at the beginning of this past year in Massachusetts, Boston specifically. Uh, what could people expect from a film like that? Hopefully it's going to be John Wick again with uh, some female, the Tarashi, you know, she was a fantastic uh, female actor. Um, some action, you know, a kind of, it's not a love story, but, it, but it's a very tight relationship with, with a woman and a boy. And, you know, as you, and you, as you can see in the trailer, it's like action stuff. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, it's not done yet, so, you know. But the screenplay was great and everybody, all the cast and the director and the whole setup was a bunch of really nice guys. Um, I want to I close with a beautiful quote and a question to you. Uh, one of the things Guillermo was talking about, um, he said something that really stuck with me. It was 70% of your own art will be unexplained, but you need to hold on and know the other 30% so you can keep the conversation going with yourself. So I was going to ask you, what is that conversation like for you in terms of the work you've produced and the work you're looking to produce? You know, you always want to do something better. I'm always, I'm never satisfied with my job, you know, I say, oh, I did, why didn't I do that and why did you? And I think that's a very powerful, powerful thing, you know, just to try to do it better every time. And, you know, don't be afraid of making some small mistakes because if you're not making mistakes you're not moving you know if you're always playing the safe side of the road you know you're not going to move yourself and of course you have to do that with your director you have to take some chances and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work hopefully most of the time it works because you don't want to make too many too many mistakes but you, I think it's important to push yourself into something new and not only think oh I did that last time I'm going to do that again and don't be afraid of the darkness, don't be afraid of anything new, because it's just going to open your mind. And there you have it, folks. I would like to thank Dan for being so generous with this time. Also, a big thank you to our sound engineer, Nate Jackets, for recording this conversation, and especially to our sound mixer, Eric Boss, for working around the clock to get this episode out in time for the release of The Shape of Water. The film currently holds a 95% score on Rotten Tomatoes and seven Golden Globe nominations. It's a testament to the imaginative sensibility of Del Toro's talent as a storyteller. We love the film, and highly encourage you to check it out on the big screen when it opens near you. Thanks again, and stay tuned for upcoming episodes with new guests, including composers David Arnold and David Newman. I'm Brando Benetton, and you have been listening to Soundstage Access.